You're listening to the Jazz Session with my dad, Jason Crane. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. This is episode 356. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. They're online at respectsextet.com, and you can buy their albums there. Thanks to Dave Rabel for the show's logo. He's online at twitter.com slash Vrabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. All About Jazz carries this show on their website, and they've got a widget that you can install on your site that'll show the latest episode of the show. Please go to allaboutjazz.com and type in Jazz Session Widget in the search box, and then if you put it on your site, let me know, because I'll mention you in my newsletter. To get the newsletter, go to thejazzsession.com and click on Mailing List and type in your email address. You'll get a copy of the newsletter each week right in your inbox that tells you who's on the show that week, gives you links to listen, and also some other interesting links about the jazz world and usually a poem or two, that kind of thing. While you're there at thejazzsession.com, please become a member. This show only survives. This, that is, this is the truth. There is no glossing this at all. This show only survives because of your membership. So please do become a member. You can do it for as little as $10 a month, but there are membership levels above that. And right now, the next two people who join at the middle or upper level will get a copy of Anthony Wilson's DVD CD set, Seasons, for free. Also, please review the show on iTunes. It helps the show go up in the iTunes rankings and makes it more likely that other people will discover the Jazz Session. So if you get the Jazz Session in iTunes, or even if you just have iTunes, and maybe that's not how you get it, but you have access, please find the Jazz Session in the podcast directory and uh, review the show. Thanks so much. I'm also a poet, and my blog, jasoncrane.org, contains my latest poetry and also uh, a link to purchase my book, which is called Unexpected Sunlight and came out in 2010. That also helps put food on the table, but more importantly, I just enjoy that other people have my poetry in their hands. So uh, visit jasoncrane.org and read the poems, and uh, if you like what you read, get a copy of the book. My guest today is pianist and vocalist Champion Fulton. Here is a song from her latest album, The Breeze and I. to be 
true She meant me for someone Just exactly like you My guest is the pianist and vocalist champion Fulton. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Jason. I'm excited. Me too. I, uh... I think the first time I actually saw you live wasn't until uh, this summer, my first time at the Detroit Jazz Fest. Oh, yeah. And I was sitting with uh, Mark Stryker, who's a writer for the Detroit Free Press, let's call it, even if that's not what it's called. <laughs> and he was commenting on how uh, how naturally you seem kind of at home in music that is generally of even the generation before your parents generation um which i really like too because I, I really love music from that era and think you really embody it well and i wanted to talk maybe start talking about when music like that began to feel kind of natural or real to you part of who you were i guess my guess is that it was at a very young age given your background <laughs> it, it was um that was just the music i grew up with my father is a trumpet player and oh you saw him he was on the show with mm-hmm. me he plays flugelhorn with me now um and when i was born all I was allowed to listen to was Charlie Parker with strings for like a couple years. And even before I was born, you know, that's what the only music my mother really was allowed to hear kind of for a while too. So that was all I knew until he started putting in other music, you know, like Count Basie, Bud Powell. I had, these were all on cassette tapes, which I still have them. Um, and I just, I grew up on that kind of music. It wasn't until... I started watching TV or like when I went to school that I heard the contemporary pop music. And by that time I was like, what is this? You guys should hear Charlie Parker. This is, you know, that's what's really happening. <laughs> so I just, I feel at home there because that, that is kind of my home. Uh, I have to ask how literal you're being when you say that was all that was playing in your the house. Very literal. It's yeah, no, really, I swear. Which sounds strange. It's very I have strange. To admit. No, that when my mother says that, you know, when I was born and in the hospital, you know, the first couple times like when I would be with my mom, he my father insisted he had a tape player, which of course back then was kind of like a big big apparatus, and he would bring it in and he would say, When she's with her mom, you have to press play on this boombox and the nurses would be like, Whatever, you're crazy <laughs> And he was like, No, I'm serious And Susan was like, Yes, he's serious, just press play, you know. Because he really had this idea that he wanted the music and, you know, I mean, when you're with your mother, when you're a kid, that's like heaven. That's the perfect thing. So he wanted the music to be associated with good feeling. And so that is that is really literally all I heard. Now, it's interesting. We're actually, as I'm looking at you, right behind your head is Charlie Parker. Yes. That was my first poster <laughs> from when I was born. You seem to understand each foolish dream I'm dreaming and scheme I'm scheming. Now I know why mother taught me to be true. She meant me for someone just exactly like you. She meant me for someone just like you. You know, there's a, I think there's a tendency, uh, for kids to go in one of two directions where their parents' music is concerned, which is either an affinity for it or rebellion away from it. Like, mm-hmm. okay, Charlie Parker's cool and that's why I'm listening to The Clash now, dad. Thanks very much. <laughs> um, did you have a period of, 
you know, like estrangement from the music and then you readopted it later in life? Or were you always convinced that this was stuff worth listening to? I never really rebelled against the music or, or even really against, against my parents. I don't know. I think for some reason I'm just very lucky and, you know, I'm an only child and I'm very close with both my parents and we really get along like friends even you know, I mean, of course, they're my parents, but we're friends. So I never felt the need to to rebel in that way. Will you talk about when you started thinking of music as something you could do, not just something you could hear? I think I always felt that way. Because my, my uh, father, you know, he wanted me to play. We had a piano in the house, so I played piano. I played drums when I got a little bit older. I could, like, sit up and play them. And then I played trumpet. He really wanted me to follow in his footsteps with the trumpet. And so I just, I always thought, that I would be a musician. And when I went to school, you know, in like kindergarten, first grade, they ask you, what do you want to do? And I guess for a minute I was like, oh, maybe I'll be a teacher. Maybe I'll be a lawyer. But it was always sort of like, eh, not really. Like, I just want to play music. Will you talk a little more about your dad and the kind of people who he was surrounded with and therefore the environment that you were in as a kid? Yeah, when I was born in Oklahoma and we lived there for five years and he had a band. <clears throat> In the, in Norman, in Oklahoma City. Um, and I was always around them. I mean, they were always practicing at the house. And then he became very involved with Clark Terry, with the Clark Terry summer camps. And so Clark would be coming to visit us, or we would be going to see him perform. And, um, then like people like his friends, like Marshall Royal, Snooky Young, um, Butch Miles, and they all became part, Red Holloway, I should say Red, because, they all were around our house all the time. And then when we moved to Iowa in, I guess, like, 93, my father was the director of the Clark Terry Institute of Jazz Studies. So then I was even more, like, surrounded by his friends and their music. It's so weird because <laughs> we're having this conversation in the year 2012. And I don't know how old you are, but I'm sure you're younger than I am. And so <laughs> you're you're talking as if things that happened, like, 20 years ago happened you know, more likely happened 60 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it's kind of incredible that you have that direct link to the, you know, kind of the root of a lot of this music. I mean, not many people get to have that of any age at this point. No, I, I think that's what I mean. I think I was just really lucky to be born sort of in the circumstances and at the time when I was born because everything, I mean, not everything, but a lot of things really aligned to give me what I wanted, you know, to be a jazz musician. I mean, I was like, Clark was a family friend. I mean, we talked to him on the phone. You know, I would draw pictures for him. And in fact, I think he gave me my first compact disc it was like a gift was the Louis Armstrong plays the Disney songbook. And I remember my dad was like, Oh, this is from Clark. You know, it's your first CD. Like it belonged to me. It was a big deal, you know. And then as I started to become a musician, you know, Clark would give me lessons just at home. Just we'd be having dinner or whatever. And he'd be like, Oh, champion, you know, play something or. Let's play, you know, together or, or whatever. Um, it was really special. I mean, in the sense that I don't think, I think you're right, I don't think a lot of people had that. Did you realize, or do you know when you realized the the place in the music that someone like Clark Terry had? When Was it always clear that he, besides being a family friend, he was also like a luminary in this music mm -hmm. that your father was involved in? Yeah, I think I always knew because, I mean, first, when I heard him play, you know, I thought, in my mind, I was thinking, oh, yeah, Charlie Parker and Clark Terry, you know, like, that's, <laughs> of course, like, that makes sense. And since Charlie can't come over, it's nice that Clark is <laughs> <right>? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but 
I mean, it was when we'd go, you know, he would do concerts and we would go and or when he was coming to the school, you know, they would give concerts. And I mean, people, people go crazy about Clark. You know, they line up and everywhere, even now, everywhere I go, if I mention Clark Terry's name, I think there's always someone in the audience who's like, oh, I saw Clark in 1974 and he talked to us at my high school. You know, he was very important in, I think, making the music very accessible to people. Uh, one thing I should have done several minutes ago that I always try and do on the show, will you tell people who Clark Terry is for folks oh. who are listening who don't actually know so yes. we don't just keep saying his name? Uh, Clark Terry plays trumpet and flugelhorn and uh, he was, I guess he was born in 1920 and uh, he's... He played with Count Basie, most notably played with Duke Ellington. Um, he was in the Tonight Show Orchestra and then became a leader of his own later, like starting in the 70s. Um, but he was really important not only as a performer in the music, but like I said, he did a lot with jazz education and really outreach and making the music kind of accessible to people that maybe didn't hear it all the time. you are they didn't believe me no they didn't believe me your lips your eyes your cheeks your hair are in a class beyond compare you're the handsomest man i have ever seen and when i tell them and i'm certainly going to tell them that you're the man whose wife one day i hope to be world you have chosen me also interesting to me you i did briefly live in oklahoma city so i have a little idea of of oklahoma city but uh i mean you you grew up in two places in oklahoma and iowa that are not necessarily known as hotbeds of jazz performance so i wonder what opportunities did you have besides you know the people who came to the house or whatever to actually see live performances of jazz i guess we didn't have a lot of opportunities that weren't created you know, like kind of by my father. I mean, mm. he would bring a lot of people to perform when we were in Oklahoma at the Sooner Theater, or he was really involved with the jazz festival. And then in Iowa with the Institute, I mean, they had performers. I think they had a guest teacher performer like once a month almost. So I think pretty much all the opportunities I experienced when I was younger were sort of created by my, by my father. Cause like you said, there's not really a lot of live performances there in either place. Mm. So as you, you said you from even from an early age you thought this playing music was what you wanted to do and can you talk about how you began to kind of direct your life along that path how you i mean you played a bunch of instruments as a kid and at some point you chose piano and vocals how did you begin to make those choices and and figure out what direction you would go in as a musician well i love to sing i think all kids love to sing cuz it's you can do it 
you don't have to like learn anything. You just open your mouth and it's like, ta-da. But my father was very adamant. He'd be like, no, you cannot be just a singer. Like you're going to learn an instrument or a few. So like pick them. <laughs> you know? Why? Why do you think that mattered to him? I think, I think because he wanted me to know about like the technical aspects of the music theory and, and just, I literally the technical aspects of playing something and not just singing. Cause like I said, it, since it's something we can all do, I don't want to say it's easier because it's not necessarily easier, but in some ways it is. So I just naturally found the piano to be a good fit because you can do both at the same time. I never really liked the drums. I don't know. I played them. They didn't stick. But I loved the trumpet. But it was, you know, the trumpet is a very demanding instrument. And if you don't give it what it wants every day, it will conquer you. And I think I just sort of realized that the best fit for me was going to be piano and singing. I guess I decided around maybe 10 or 11, 12, around there. Um, for me, there's an obvious model for what you do. And uh, I know it has some relevance to you, which mm -hmm. is Nat Cole. I mean, that's mm -hmm. the music I grew up listening to because of my grandparents. And, uh, you know, someone who, although many people know him primarily as a singer now, was just a badass at the piano. And his trio was, I think, one of the great trios and jazz uh, and so i wonder if you had beside i know you've mentioned that in your bio and other places but besides that were there other models for the person you wanted to become musically i don't know not really i mean i did love nat king cole but mostly when i was growing up it was my favorite pianist when i was very small or went kelly red garland and then i loved dinah washington that was the only singer I would listen to. My father would be like, no, here, check out Billie Holiday. I'm like, no, I'm good. I'm okay with Dinah. That's it. But Which has obviously since changed because the other poster that you're sitting in front of <laughs> is an enormous poster of Billie Holiday. It did change. <laughs> when I was in high school, I started listening to Billie and Sarah Vaughan, who's one of my favorites. Um, but I think in my mind, I always was like thinking that I would combine. I'd be like Wynton Kelly and Red Garland, sort of like this Bud Powell thing meets Errol Garner and Count Basie meets Dinah Washington. I think that was always like my idea, you know. Yeah. I don't know. Which is a pretty nice combination, really. Yeah. In my <laughs> mind, I thought that would be great if we could have that, you know. <laughs> Do you remember what it was about Dinah Washington that appealed to you? I just, I, I just loved her singing. I don't know. One of the first, well, the first record of hers I had, I think, was the Blue record on Mercury, um, for those in love with Clark's on that and Wynton Kelly. And um, I just really loved that her singing was kind of no nonsense. It was so straight ahead with a big sound, and she was just very, like, balls to the wall, and I liked that. Does being a pianist as well as a singer, does it give you some some weight or some cred that might be harder for singers to achieve? I mean, it seems like they are often... Uh you know, it's difficult for them at jam sessions and places like that. I think a lot of musicians have some stereotypical views of what a vocalist is going to bring to the mm -hmm. table. Do you think that playing the piano helps kind of push through some of those yeah, barriers? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's that's really true. I mean, when I when I came to New York in 2003 to go to go to school, to go to purchase, I didn't even want anyone to know that I sang. Mm. I wouldn't tell anybody because, you know, you go to a session in New York and you're a girl and they say, oh, honey, you know, are you a singer? And I loved that I could be like, no, are you? You know, I want to play piano. Cause I just thought, oh, that's, that really rubbed me the wrong way. Sure. But, um, 
so it took me a while. It took me a couple of years before I wanted to to sing. And even now, I sort of like would rather people say that I'm a pianist who sings than a singer who plays piano. I don't know. There is a lot of that sort of negative connotations with being a female singer. Hmm. Why did you decide to go to Purchase? I went to Purchase. I came up here for my audition, and I liked it. I just, I, I well, I, I had first heard of it because I met John Faddis in Oklahoma a few times when he was coming through as a clinician, and then I saw him on the jazz cruise my senior year of high school. We just mentioned that he's also a trumpet player, and he works at Purchase. Yes, right. And um, he... I really liked John. I just thought he was nice and personable and kind of the musician I wanted to be around. And he talked so highly of Purchase. And then I came up here for the audition and I liked it. And there were like a hundred practice rooms compared with the schools in Manhattan where there's like 10. And I was like, oh, maybe this would be a good idea. <laughs> More <laughs> access to piano and John Faddis. So, right. Okay. It's the wrong time and the wrong place Though your face is charming It's the wrong face, it's not his face But such a charming face that it's alright with me It's the wrong song in the wrong style Though your smile is lovely It's the wrong smile, it's not his smile But such a lovely smile that it's alright with me You can't know how happy I am that we met I'm strangely attracted to you Someone I'm trying so hard to forget Known you want to forget someone too It's the wrong game with the wrong chips Though your lips are tempting They're the wrong lips They're not his lips But there's such tempting lips That if some night you're free Then it's alright It's alright It's I guess in some ways that you went to jazz school at all because you're one of those rare people who actually grew up with access to what most kids no longer have access to, which is established masters in the tradition that you had a chance to be around and play with and learn from. And that's what people used to do before there was jazz school. And in many ways now there is jazz school because that doesn't exist. So I'm wondering, given the background that you had and the childhood that you had, why you decided it was necessary to go to jazz school at all. I didn't really want to go to school. Mm. Um, I graduated high school a year early. So I was 17. And I was like, yeah, let's move to New York. I'm going to move to New York and become a jazz pianist. And I think my parents were like, no, that's that's not going to happen. Then I think they were right. I think I wasn't really mature enough, both as a musician or just as a person, to kind of come out here and start on my own. So in my mind... Back then, I sort of justified going to school that it would give me just more time in the incubator to kind of work mm. on things. And and I really did want to be around people like John Faddis, Javon Jackson taught there, Ralph LaLama. Um, I mean, a lot of great teachers were there and are still there now. But I I wanted to be around those kind of people. Are you able to 
to point to things in the way that you approach performance now that came out of that experience? Yes. I think the most valuable thing I got out of purchase was just the practice time, which you wouldn't have if you were like in the real life situation because you have to pay rent and you have to clean your apartment and, you know, do adult things. But in college, your parents are basically paying you or my parents, I was lucky that they paid for my college, but I was there just to practice and to work on things and spend time with my instrument. I think that was the most valuable. Maybe the second thing, I studied privately with John for one year. And that was great because I was able to learn from him about being a jazz musician, just interacting with him. And, you know, we worked a lot on stride piano and we worked on things a lot of people don't work on, kind of like stage presence almost and not looking at the piano while you play and, you know, things like that that seem obvious, but are not always so obvious. I ain't much to look at Ain't nothing to see I'm glad to just lucky to be I've got a man Crazy for me He's funny that way I ain't got a dollar Can't save a cent Oh, but he wouldn't holler He'd live in a tent I've got a man Crazy for me He's funny that way Though he'd love to work and slave For me It's interesting to me, having seen you now a couple of times, uh, you know, there's a real, I'm not sure if it's a clear divide, but there are certainly people who feel of two ways about the idea of performance uh, and kind of showmanship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and certainly John is part of uh, the lineage of the old school, and Clark is absolutely in that too, where part of what you were doing was putting on a show, not at the expense of the music, but in addition to the music. Um, which strikes me as where you fit in also, but not where a lot of people of your or my generation fit in. And so I wonder um, how, kind of how you came to that, how you decided that putting on the show was going to be part of of what you did. I don't know if I ever really thought about it consciously. I mean, I started working when we were in Oklahoma. I started working like I was like 12. We started playing at Borders. We played at Borders Books and Music. <laughs> but then it, when I was about 15, we started playing at this cigar club, which is no longer there, called Makers in Bricktown in downtown Oklahoma City. And, you know, out there in Oklahoma, not necessarily a lot of quote-unquote jazz fans. So you have to kind of draw them in with not only the music, but, you know, I mean, 
I'm a girl, I'm a teenage girl, and I figured out, oh, if I smile, they like it. <laughs> They'll tip me more if I smile, and oh, if I talk to them, you know, they clap more, which I think, I think is really true. I think if you talk to your audience and, like, interact with them as a person on a personal level, they kind of appreciate your music more. Mm. So I think I just learned, I mean, of course, you know, I was seeing my father, I was seeing Clark do it on the, you know, on, in person and then on jazz videos. And I think it just, I didn't really think there was any other way. I just thought, oh, I have to get better at doing this. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, will you talk about um, what it was like when you started to become part of the New York scene? It was fun. It was invigorating. I sometimes, I, I wish it was, you know, I mean, still that invigorating. When things are new, it's really amazing. And when I came here um, that first year in college, 2003, every Sunday at Fat Cat, Jimmy Cobb used to play... Well, not every Sunday, but most Sundays. He played with Frank West. Uh, Ilya Lushtak was the band leader. And uh, different bassists and pianists would come. And I just remember thinking that was the coolest thing, that I could like go and hang out with Jimmy Cobb and Frank West every Sunday for $5. And I would be like, hi, Jimmy. I'm champion. I play piano. I want to play in your band. Can I play in your band? Can I sit in? I love Dinah Washington. <laughs> I love this record you were on. And I think Jimmy was like, what are you? You know, But he, they got to know me and... And because I was so in their face all the time. I mean, I followed them. I would say four or five nights a week during school, I would be at a show somewhere. And I always would talk to the musicians because, you know, you're young and you're excited and you think, oh, everyone is friendly and young and excited. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know? but it, was, it was a lot of fun. How did you start to kind of carve out work for yourself and well, I started working a little bit in college. I wasn't really focused on it, but, you know, I started working um, actually with two of the musicians I work with now. Hide Tanaka, bass player, actually gave me my first gig. And uh, Fuku, the drummer on my record, gave me some gigs then, too. And I started playing Happy Hour at Birdland, which kind of came about very oddly. I just I hung out at Birdland all the time. And they were really nice to me. And so like, I sort of started just going in. I would go in for free, and I knew everybody. And then... One day, Tarek, who's the manager, was like, oh, you know, we need a pianist on Thursdays for cocktail hour. Like, do you want to do it? And I was like, yes. <laughs> um, but then when I graduated school, I sort of made a little chart about of how much money I needed to survive mm. in each month, like rent, food, whatever. And I totaled it out to X number of $50 paying gigs. And I just went out and I would go to every place I knew had live music. And I'd be like, you should hire me. So, pounding the pavement is how I did it. <laughs> and were you both playing and singing in those gigs or mostly playing? Mm, I think mostly playing sort of to start. But a couple months in, I started singing. You know, I love to sing. And I think I felt more comfortable when I was out of school that I could do what I wanted, you know. Mm. Was there uh, – I ask this question all the time, and it's always exactly this way, so why break with tradition? Was there some <laughs> – Either some moment or some person who helped open a door to the kind of the the more robust career that you have now, or was it just kind of the slow accumulation of fifty dollar paying gigs? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. I think it was. I think you could see it both ways, um, but I think my association with Birdland was really helpful because. It sounded impressive when I would tell other musicians that I met, 
oh, you can come hear me. I'm with my trio, because I turned it into a trio. It wasn't just solo piano anymore. You know, you could come hear my trio at Birdland. It sort of turned it into a more, oh, well, maybe I should really come hear her. Like, that's Birdland. Oh, that's... And um, then I met David Berger at Birdland, and I started singing with his band, and I had my first record. So I think maybe the Birdland Association mm. was very helpful. Do you ever think uh, about about trying to be in any way contemporary given like in the con that didn't mean that the sound <laughs> condescending i mean in the context of the music you play i mean do you is it a concern for you at all to try to reach like this generation of music listeners not just people who remember the music that you play well when i was when i was younger when i was in high school i was somewhat concerned with being contemporary like you said and i did a book report for oklahoma history class on jay mcshan i called jay on the phone and um i had met him the past summer and i wanted to talk to him about this because i thought he was contemporary at his time you know and and i asked him about it and then i said you know who are your who's your favorite modern pianist or contemporary pianist and he was kind of quiet for a minute and then he said, oh, well, Jay McShan, or he said, Art Tatum is pretty modern to me. And I thought, oh, my God, that's and so, like, that's the answer to the question. I thought that's, you know, what does that even mean to be to be contemporary? I mean, my music is contemporary because I'm doing it now. And it's modern because I'm doing it, you know, it's happening now. Mm. And I think, I think people of our generation and even younger really relate to the music. They just don't get exposed to it enough. You know, so when I go out and I play Stardust or Pennies from Heaven or or whatever, they like it. And they come up to me and they say, oh, that's beautiful. Did you write that? I never heard that. I really like it. And I think, oh, they still like it. I, I think the media wants people to think that jazz is old and dead for whatever their purpose is. But I don't think that's really true. I hope you always answer yes to the did you write it question. <laughs> yeah, of course yes, I wrote I that. Did. I wrote everything oh. I played tonight. Ruby, my dear. <laughs> Hello. Yeah, come on. <laughs> It's a Fulton original. Yes. Oh, that's awesome. Well, tell me about that. Tell me who comes to your shows. Well, I have a really wide range of people who come to my shows. Um, Some very young, like really all ages. I mean, Mm. honestly, which sounds, I know sounds strange because a lot of people think with what I play that most of my fans are older. Um, But it's not true. I mean, I think... For for whatever reason, I think I have a lot more male fans than than female fans, but I would still say they're all ages mm. come out. For whatever reason, being that jazz in general has a lot more male fans. Yes. Than... Well, it's more it's a masculine. I mean, it's a masculine art form. I think. Yeah, and we're terrible at including women generally. So. <laughs> <Maybe> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes, but it's nicer. Your spin is nicer. <laughs> Uh, you were just on tour. Can you talk about where you were and what it was like? Yes, it was my first tour. So um, it was really exciting. We played in D.C. That was the start of the tour, was Washington, D.C. And uh, then we went to Germantown, Tennessee, which is just outside of Memphis, like 10 miles, and played a show there. We went down through Tupelo, Mississippi, which is where Elvis was born. So we were sort of on the Elvis circuit there for a minute. <laughs> Graceland, and then we went to the birthplace. Um, we went down to Hammond, Louisiana, played a the theater we played at snug harbor in new orleans and came back up through atlanta at this new club called studio 281 and then we came home so it was really exciting because 
I put the tour together myself. My father and I did it. And I had no idea how much work it was going to be. And even up until the moment we left, I was thinking, oh, please just let everything work out. I don't want there to be any problems. I hope I've estimated everything, budgeted everything correctly. Uh, and it went surprisingly well in that sense. And also just really fun to meet people in that part of the world that don't get a lot of jazz in their area, that were really appreciative and excited and... It was was really nice. Yeah, how did you pick the places that you played? I mean, that's an interesting itinerary of places. Obviously, New Orleans is pretty obvious, and D.C., and maybe even Atlanta, but yeah. there were some others in there that were surprising. Mm, well, it was actually... I'd, I started doing this tour last... I started working on it last year and with the idea that I would pick the venues around my Facebook fans, my Facebook friends. So I asked them, where do you live? Where, like what theater or jazz club or venue is in your town that I could play. And that's how we picked everything. Um, Tupelo, Mississippi, obviously being one of the stranger places, I think, to, to play. But I have a lot of friends who live in that area, who live in New Albany and Tupelo. And uh, they recommended Vanelli's that has music. And I called them, and they were just like, oh, we'd love to have you. So that's how I, I picked everything out was Facebook. Now, I mean, you only have to expose so much of the truth here, but did that turn out to work? Did people from your social media networks then come out to the shows, given yes. that you'd picked them based on their location? It did work. I got to meet so many of my uh, Facebook friends that I've never met before and ones that I haven't seen in a long time. And um, it was, yeah, it it worked. I don't know. I'm surprised myself, <laughs> but it did. It worked. <laughs> Well, you mentioned uh, who's in your band you did in passing throughout the interview, but will you mm -hmm. say specifically? Well, on this tour, we had a little bit of a different, uh, a different set of people. My father, of course, was with me, Stephen Fulton on flugelhorn, Hide Tanaka on bass, and uh, on drums, this time we had Pete Zimmer. Hmm. I think you know Pete. I Pauline. do, yep. Um, and so it was a quartet. It was the four of us. That's great. Uh, this is one of those questions you can't possibly answer except in only one way, but I'll ask you anyway. What's <laughs> it like having your dad in the band and leading a band with your parent in it? It's fun. Actually, we, like I said before, we're really friends and we love the music. So we just have a good time like rehearsing and listening to music and doing the business is great because since he's my father, he wants to do all like the heavy lifting, dirty work. <laughs> so that's great for me. I don't have to do anything bad. I'm like, oh, you know, something's funny with the money. Take care of it, dad. <laughs> so it's perfect. That's wonderful. <laughs> I never thought of that angle of it. That's no, very it's cool. good. And like, I, I don't have to worry about being hit on or anything. Cause I'm just like, oh, that's my father. And right. Then we're good. Does he, I know he, uh, he tends to s sit and play. Does mm -hmm. he sit like on a rack of shotguns or something just to <laughs> make it clear? Yeah, right. Yes. <laughs> right. He very wishes, nice. I yeah, think. Exactly. <laughs> Whenever I think of you, darling, I think of you Day in and day out, day out, day in I needn't tell you how my days begin When I awake, I wake it with a tingle One possibility in view, the possibility of maybe seeing you Come rain, come shine 
I meet you and to me the day is fine Then I kiss your lips and the bounty becomes The ocean's roar, a thousand drums Can't you see the love, can there be any doubt When there it is, there it is Uh, will you talk about recording and when it was time to make your first of the three records, how you started choosing repertoire mm. from the vast library of music that you played? That was a that was in 2007, and that was the big band record with David Berger. That was my first record. And David and I just kind of picked those songs out we, from just listening to records. We loved to listen to records together, and we would listen, and we'd go, oh, that's a great song. We should do that, you know. That's just kind of how we picked them out. We just wanted it to be songs that we really liked mm. at the time. You know, you don't always like a song forever, but. And did that hold true in terms of the method for the, the next two records as well? It did, yeah. For Sometimes I'm Happy, um, it was a lot of songs at that time that we were performing. And it's a small group. And then, of course, the record label Venus, they picked a couple tunes, which I think ultimately didn't actually make the CD. They picked Misty and Whistling in the Dark. Um, and then for The Breeze and I, which was the most recent album, they were tunes that we had been performing that we felt like were the ones people really liked mm. the most. But we didn't even really have a firm set list when we went into the studio for that record. We were, we played, I had a, like a five or six on the list and we, and then I would just say, oh, what about this one? And we would just do it. That's great. Is it important for you to have a, a working band, a stable group of people around you? Yes. It's very important to me. I know to some people it's not as big of a deal, but I think that when you work together all the time, you have the music just gets better and better because, you, you know, you're playing the same repertoire, basically. I mean, you know, we, we have certain songs that we play at every show, and every time you play them together, you find, like, another little piece that can be a little different or you know, emphasized in a certain way. And I think you can't do that unless you're the same band every time. Mm. This is a silly question, but is there a reason you tend to have Japanese players in your band? <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think there's a reason. I mean, I when I met Fuku, it was on the jazz cruise in, I guess it was like 2002 or 2003, and he was playing with Lou Donaldson. Mm. And I, I didn't think like, oh, he's Japanese. I just remember thinking, wow, that's that's a hell of a drummer. And uh, then, of course, when I moved to New York, I became friends with him. And a lot of his friends are Japanese, naturally. And so I, I just met a lot of musicians. There's a lot of creative music happening in the jazz, in the Japanese community that is sort of not noticed by the rest of the jazz community. Can you talk a little more about that? Give us a little perspective on what's I going just, on? I think the for whatever reason, I mean, there are a lot of cliques in the New York scene, I think in, in, in the jazz scene in general. But the Japanese clique is very isolated, um, and they keep to themselves. But there are some really incredible players. Like, I think Hide is, is really one of the best bass players in New York City. But he's sort of like a hidden gem a little mm. bit. You know, he works with me, and he works with Junior Mans. Um, there's a lot of a lot of great music and a lot of great hangs. There, And I find usually that the Japanese jazz scene is very interested in like listening to records and talking about music and hanging out, which is what I love to do. So 
I had a, a vocalist friend who doesn't live in New York, stayed here this past summer, and she went to a bunch of like vocal sessions and things around New York that I had no idea existed because I'm <laughs> in no way part of that world. And I wonder if – do you feel like you move through some specialized worlds or some cliques of your own uh, just oh. given what you do? I think I think so. Well, I think you can't help it but be like – maybe click isn't the right word, but just you can't help but be in the scene you know, sort of that you're in or that you create. Sure. And especially for people who are mostly band leaders and not sidemen, because we sort of tend to hire the same people and then you're around the same people all the time. Right. Uh, so I think that's true. Do you have any, uh, like, great five-year plan or some idea of what might be coming up for you or even less years than that, fewer years? I don't know. I think I'm really... Just I'm happy with the way things are going. I, I love that I'm traveling more. This summer I'm going to be going to Europe um, for like almost nine weeks. Like oh, wow. Broken up. I'm three weeks here, three weeks there, like that. Um, I'm really excited about that. And I really want to record again, hopefully this year or, you know, even early next year. Um, but my, my plan sort of in general for the rest of my life, <laughs> my 60-year <laughs> plan, is uh, just to keep keep doing what I'm doing sure. and get a bigger apartment. <laughs> Although I have to say, sitting in your apartment, this is quite fine for New York. Thank you. I think I you're think, doing, and you're I doing think for really Midtown, well. like it's it's pretty spacious. Yeah. But compared to Oklahoma, like we're sitting near each other, and we have more than a foot of room between us right now. <laughs> so I mean, you're you're living it up. I wouldn't I wouldn't <laughs> be too you. hard on yourself at this point. Thank you. And I have to end. I apologize. I'm sure everyone asks you this, but you, why is your name Champion? I I don't know. My father says that he it just came to him, and he wanted his child to be named Champion, whether it was a boy or a girl. And uh, they just is my, the, my mother went along with it. <laughs> is the O or the A second vowel or a third vowel? I guess was that based on gender, or he just wanted it spelled that way? Yeah, you know, he he picked the A because I turned out to be a girl, and he thought it was more feminine. But it. I, I mean, I love my name. I get champagne a lot. Yeah. People say that a lot because I think of the, because of the A, but. Champagne Fulton. Yeah. Thank God your father went with champion. Yeah. <laughs> we have, you. we can certainly thank him for not naming you Champagne Fulton. <laughs> That'd be pretty rough. Yeah. Although if you ever start a cabaret career, I highly recommend. Yeah, champagne that would work Fulton out. As a name. Well, my guest is Champion Fulton and uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you and I wish you all the best of luck with what comes ahead. Thank you, Jason. Thanks. That's music from Champion Fulton and her album The Breeze and I. I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session, sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. And, of course, supported by you. Please do become a member at thejazzsession.com slash join. And meanwhile, get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can. And then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. <laughs>